from that point, when we were on the side of the road and she told me I needed to write that book, it took me a couple weekends. Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show, where we talk about the business of sports and media, diversity, uh, opportunities, all different kinds of things uh, that we cover throughout the course of the year. We're coming up quickly on podcast number 200. Uh, I'm Joe Favorito, usually along with my co-host Tom Richardson, who's taking a, an early July break uh, from, from the goings-on here in 2020. Um, and we're going to talk today a little bit about the invention of a business, taking uh, advantage of an opportunity, building from your strengths, and really creating, reinventing yourself time and time again. My guest today is M. Quentin Williams. Q and I will get into a little bit about how we met in his kind of diverse career, but why it's relevant to today is a grassroots organization that he and his ex-wife had created and have now is really mushroomed called Dedication to Community, which is about building relationships, not breaking down relationships, especially between law enforcement and the community. And a lot of times now it's starting to involve, involve athletes. So Q, welcome to the Cusp Show. Thanks a lot, Joe. My pleasure. So uh, we'll get into how we met in the bowels of what was then the Gator Bowl a long time ago. Um, but why you know, Stadium. Yeah. Is that what it is now? It's Qualcomm Stadium now? The home of the Jaguars. It, it was Alltel then. Alltel. Alltel Stadium. Yeah. yeah. I like to affectionately call it the, the Gator Bowl. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, why don't you kind of walk everybody through your kind of life experience path to how you got to dedication to community. And I realize it's kind of a circuitous one, but it's a really interesting one, uh, especially as you've authored books and have been doing a lot of speaking. So kind of take us through the path from when you were young, growing up in Yonkers to how you got to today. Sure, thanks, Joe. Uh, well, it actually started on the island of St. Thomas. I was born there, but I only stayed there for four months with my mother who, uh, who, who ran away from home to get to a safer place for many reasons. She was being abused by a family member. And so she went to St. Thomas, met my father. Um, my, my mother is a white Jewish woman. My father, my biological father was a black Antiguan man. And at the height of the civil rights movement, she gave birth to me. And uh, since he left us before I was born, uh, she decided to go back to New York where she was from and try to try to make up with her family. They had disowned her and uh, that didn't work out too well. At four months old, we, we went back to New York for that purpose. And then uh, we lived in squalor basically for the next, next five years uh, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, uh, experiencing all the crime of the day down there. And because I, I approached my mother one day and said, we, I just don't want to live down here anymore. She moved us up to Westchester, New York, and um, still don't know how she did it because she had no money. But we moved up to Yonkers, New York. And I often say, I don't know if Yonkers was any better than the Lower East Side because there was so much crime there. And Yonkers, as many people may know, was going through some terrible issues with education, uh, federal suits and uh, drugs and public corruption. It was really a tough place to be. And it's come a long way. I'm really proud of Yonkers in the modern day. It's, uh, it's an up and coming place. And uh, so we lived there and I did all my schooling, K through 12 there, uh, couldn't read really well, 
Uh, I suffer from some kind of, I don't know if it's ADHD, but I wasn't able to put sentences together well into my 20s. So I struggled in, in school, but I did well in school. Uh, but I struggled because I wasn't able to read well. Uh, fortunately, surrounded myself with great people. And I got a football scholarship to go to Boston College. I was a puny kid when I was, uh, you know, in my younger years. I was very puny, but and I would get bullied all the time. So I'd, I'd work out in order to combat that and ended up becoming a decent athlete and got this scholarship to go to Boston College, uh, played with Doug Flutie for a couple of years. He won the Heisman. I was fortunate enough to be on that team and then uh, decided to go to law school at the urging of a mentor of mine. I didn't know what a lawyer was, but he was a lawyer and he told me I needed to do this. I was, I was uh, working with some great people down in Manhattan as a bouncer and I thought I had the life after I graduated from, from BC with an economics degree as a bouncer. But uh, my friend, my mentor wouldn't let me stay in that environment for too long. So I, I went to St. John's University School of Law and wanted to be an entertainment attorney. Um, I, worked, I worked as hard as I could and still struggled with reading through law school, but I made it through. In my second year of law school, I was recruited by the FBI and, and um, decided I'd, I'd take that plunge going to law enforcement, even though on my block in Yonkers really there was nobody going into the FBI, and there, and and law enforcement was not necessarily our our uh, our adversary. Our, it was an adversary of ours on the street. It wasn't necessarily our advocate, um, and so that was a turning point for me because I I went into the FBI. I was appointed as a special agent, and I was undercover for two and a half years of my four years in the FBI. Recruited by. U.S. Attorney Christopher Droney to leave the FBI and go into uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office as a federal prosecutor. I did that, even though I thought I was going to stay in the FBI forever. Um, I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office for a year, approximately a year, but I, before I was recruited by the NFL, and I went to work for the NFL as a person who was creating and communicating policy regarding off-field misconduct. It was during the White House years when uh, everything was going crazy down in Dallas. And so they wanted, the NFL wanted to be more proactive in its stance. Paul Tagliabue was just a forward-thinking guy. And so they hired me to do that, created a position. I did that for two years, working with ownership on down to players and um, was recruited by the Jacksonville Jaguars, went down to Jacksonville, I haven't gone back to New York full time since going to the South because quality of life is just so incredible in the South. Uh, and that was a great experience. I learned more about the business side of sports when I was in Jacksonville, negotiated some player contracts, uh, ran a couple of departments, and then was recruited by the NBA to run one of its now called G League. Then it was called the D League. One of its teams, uh, the flagship team was the North Charleston Logator. Logators, we we had a actually had a reality series on ESPN called Down Low Life in the D League, and Alex English was a coach, the head coach of the team. I was the president, and so that was my route going from you know that that poverty, uh, being born to a single a, a single mother who was abandoned by my father on the island of St. Thomas, and there I was, 
I just had every experience I could have possibly dreamed about. And, um, and so I was with the NBA, and in 2001, as my friend Chris Palmer once told me, Chris used to, he was, he's a coach, he's now at the University of New Haven as the AD, but he was the head coach of the Cleveland Browns uh, at one point. I've known him for 30 years. And he sat in my office in Jacksonville when he was the offensive coordinator, and he told me, just need to tell you something, Q. I don't know if it's relevant right now, but you are nobody until somebody fires you in sports. <laughs> what are you talking about? You are nobody until somebody fired. He's a coach, so he's used to getting fired. He's just waiting to get fired. As a front office guy, that's, that, that's not necessarily applicable. But when I was with the NBA, that's what happened. I got fired. I got fired by the, by the D-League, and I was the first one to get fired. Uh, of of the four or five presidents to get fired because you know they were this they made a decision to move the league um, uh, at some point and I was I was quote unquote the golden child as my peers were telling me so I guess you fire the golden child you send a message and so I got fired and that made me think about exactly what I wanted to do in life and what I did want to do and I. I give a lot of credit to my ex-wife about this, is I wanted to empower myself. And so I started my own law firm, my own media company. And um, dedication to community is something we founded to help to create an environment of empowerment for society. People will be able to see their dreams right before them and then go reach for them. So you touched on a lot of things there. I want to go back over a bunch of them. First question was, where were you on the field when Flutie threw the pass? I was in my grandparents' home uh, <laughs> on that Friday after Thanksgiving. I, I used to tell people, yeah, I was, I was the guy who caught the pass. Then right. I, I morphed it to, now I was on the field, you see me on a pile. But, you know, I've come clean in my life. I'm, uh, you know, I'm 54 years old. When I turned 40, I just became completely transparent with my life. And I, was, I, I, just, I had just eaten dinner. We, we sat down and we watched the game from my grandparents' home because I broke my hand uh, halfway through the season. So wow. I was redshirting the rest of that year. I, was, I, played in the, uh, I, played in, I didn't play in any games, but I was, I was ready to travel. And, um, and I broke my hand, and so I, I wasn't even down there. But I did get a ring. I did get a ring. <laughs> um, so, so you touched on mentors and some of the people. Who was the mentor that you, you didn't mention uh, his name? That was number one um, that helped kind of get you through it. Another is the relationships that you've had and the relationship you've had with Tom Coughlin, who was on the BC staff when you were there and then helped either bring you to the Jaguars. It was obviously the head coach of the Jaguars when you were there. That was the, the, the how did that relationship develop? Um, and then I would love you to talk about um, before we get to kind of the book and some of the other things, you actually also represented players. So who were some of the players that you represented and what was that like from a, from a contract standpoint? Those three things. So uh, Jay Brussman is the guy who changed my life by saying, you know what? You are not going to be a bouncer for the rest of your life. You have to go to law school. And he would pester me week after week after, he basically beat me down. If he hadn't done that, I would still be bouncing probably. So he was the difference maker for me. And my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, so my grandparents did, they disowned my mother initially uh, when she ran away, but then they 
they took us back and embraced us and best grandparents in the world. After that point, they both, both passed away. Um, but my grandfather introduced me to Jay at the Y the YMWHA, the Young Men's Women's Hebrew Association um, facility in Scarsdale, New York. And so I would go there with my grandfather on weekends because I'd visit them every weekend and work out. And Jay was working out and he's 10 years older than me. And he just take he just graduated from from uh, Temple Law School, and he was taking a bar and telling me all about it. So he's the guy, Jay Brussman, still lives in Scarsdale. He's a man, a good friend of mine. He's like a brother. Mm -hmm. TC, Tom Coughlin. So yeah, Tom was instrumental in, in me coming down. He, he's not the one who initially recruited me, but um, once I had made contact with the Jaguars, they, they reached out to me. And when I went down, of course, it was, Tom was my offensive coordinator when I was a freshman. So we, I was a defensive back. So we didn't really have much contact in that way, but I have a great Tom Coughlin story. Oh my goodness. <laughs> the first time I actually spoke to Tom Coughlin, my roommate Kyle and I were waiting to, on the stairs. We were the first in line waiting in the stairs to go into our training table meal. And football, the football team had a special training table. And this was when we were freshmen. So only freshmen were there at this time. And so we got there really early, like a half hour early. And Tom was third in line. He, he walks up and he's probably like 20 minutes early. And you know how he is about time. Awesome and time. so, so he's, he's on the stairs with us. And we're just talking. And we were brand new. We had to be there maybe three days into our freshman drills. And Kyle and I are talking about why we came to BC and Kyle said why he came to BC and I said yeah why, the reason why I came to BC and Tom is right there talk, talking to us listening and I said the reason why I came to BC is because I just want to get this education I really do want to get this education it's, um, getting this degree is going to be incredible and Tom looked at Kyle and I dead deadpan in the eye and he said well that's part of the reason why you're here <laughs> he said when he said that, I was like, "Oh my goodness, <laughs> yes, okay, you got, you got me. I, uh, I'm here to play football too." <laughs> and and Tom was just he was he was an incredible coach because he was a taskmaster. Master. They had we had these exercises that were named after him, these drills named after him, and nobody was looking forward to ever doing them. They weren't really that difficult, as I look back back then. But for some, they, they were just, they were so intimidated by him. Uh, he left to go, I believe he went to the Philadelphia Eagles when he left to be the wide receiver coach. And then he did his stint in the pros before coming back to BC and then going back, of course, to the Jaguars. So um, Tom, Tom and I got along very well. And he was a mentor of sorts for me while I was in Jacksonville. Uh, really enjoyed Tom. And then you had another question. You know. Representing players, um, Dwight Freeney, a bunch of players. How, how did that come about? So I, I, I represented players as, a, as an attorney, not as an agent. And that came about just as a result of relationships. You know, I'm I, fortunate enough to know some people who have players as, as clients, either agents or whatever. And I would just do business stuff for them. Um, uh, looking at their deals, uh, ensuring they were protected, and then also uh, helping them with legal matters. 
So that 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 was the extent of it. I was business and legal strategy, not not as an agent. But there were there were some pretty high level players that you were helping. Yeah, with. I mean, I, I don't talk about the names. Uh, you mentioned okay. one. I don't really give the names, but they were at that level. They yep. they were incredible, incredible players, top five players, uh, maybe top one player in their position at at the time when I I had been representing them, um, and and great people too. Great people. Um, one thing it taught me, when, when you have folks at that level, players at that level, you see just how much they're being pulled apart by people. Everybody wants them. Everybody loves them. And then as soon as they are no longer relevant, it's like dropping off a cliff. And so I tell, I tell folks when I speak to them, players, that that's the lifespan and that's what the trajectory looks like. It's, it's just this wonderful climb until you're not climbing anymore, and then it's a cliff. And, and I would think a lot of that, and we've talked about these things in class, where <clears throat> the personal—I hate to call it brand—but but but the thing that makes you you is what you take with you from place to place. There are many people who will work for a team or a big brand or you know a political figure, and I'm so and so from so and so, and that's when you have the hammer. I think the biggest thing that you know, you've exemplified over your career is, you know, that hammer is something that you have to take with you. It's not something that when you leave, if you have to leave the hammer behind, suddenly, you know, you, you figure out your relevance, but you also figure out, you know, who will help you along the way, which I wanted to touch on the mentors that you've had, who've helped you in, in tremendous ways. And um, we'll get to the, I, I want you to talk about the book, the books, um, also kind of your, your firsthand experience on what Black Lives Matter has done. There are, there are two pretty poignant things that have happened throughout your life. You stayed involved with a bunch of athletes and we'll talk about you know, some of their relationships and where athletics can play in this. Um, but you know, for those who wouldn't obviously know, Q and I, I mentioned meant, meant in the, the bowels of the Jaguars home stadium. I was actually on a random stadium tour with my friend Joe Lynch, who was at the ATP at the time. Um, and I was down in, in Ponte Vedra and he said, oh, you want to go see? So we went over and I met Coach Coughlin and, and Q literally was walking towards me and we met in a hallway. And somehow he ended up giving me two Jaguars golf shirts, which I don't know where they are right now, but they're somewhere around, but it's all about this stuff. But again, it shows the relationship and we've stayed in touch over the years. Um, there was a, an amazing para-athlete uh, para named Josh George who you represented on the legal side. And I helped out when he was literally the fastest man on wheels for, for a while and qualified for the Olympics uh, and actually presented at my class, I think three years ago, Josh came in and presented and some of our students did a program, but that was through a relationship that Q had built. So, um, so that's kind of where we've stayed in touch over the years, never knowing, you know, where we would do or how we would work together or if we would work together, but it's a relationship that, continues to grow and, and it got to this kind of point in time with everything that's gone on in the second quarter of 2020 right now, uh, which now Q has position, positioned himself really well to help, not take advantage of, but help things move along in a positive way. So talk a little bit about the book um, or the books, um, your experience on your drives back and forth, uh, what happened as an FBI agent and how dedication to community has now kind of blossomed into what it is today. Well, thank you. Yeah, uh, you know, the, the week after George Floyd was killed, so it was June 1st, I was getting this, I got this firestorm, I call it an avalanche of calls. 
And those calls came from my friends who are leaders in, in business. And they would ask me one question. They'd say, what do I do? That's, that, that was their lead into the call. What do I do? And it was, as I said, a one week to the day of George Floyd being killed. And so I guess they had a week to digest everything and then the weekend to talk about it. So Monday they came out of the shoot just ready for action, to do something. And so I would tell them what to do because that's what we are working on with dedication to community. And um, I tell them, you, you can no longer be silent. Uh, it's one thing that you're gonna be held accountable for, for your silence. You have to take action and you have to be the leader. You have got to lead on this thing. And I would give them uh, some tools for leading so that they could actually take action and have some solutions in their hip pocket. Uh, that was really a, 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 an eye opener for me. And it was the beginning of several more avalanches. I often say several thousand more avalanches over the last few weeks. It has been so busy getting people to understand what these solutions are. And I'm just feeling so blessed that we are in this position We've done a lot of work to be at, in this position. Uh, a lot of work when folks didn't want to listen to us because we were talking about this revolution of sorts that was on its way, it was coming. I thought it was coming in another five, 10 years, but George Floyd's death accelerated everything. And a lot of people just didn't want to listen because they're busy. And so when it happened, we were ready. And what we do is we educate people. That's our action. We educate people, we educate law enforcement, we educate corporate America, we educate anybody who will listen, communities, high schoolers. We do this because we want unity. We wanna bring people together. We want folks to experience connectedness. And you know, connectedness is, all, is what I'm all about. My mother taught me really well, and my brother really well when we were young, how to build relationships. And those relationships, like the one with Joe, those relationships have lasted decades. And they're not just professional relationships. These are friendships um, coupled with sometimes working together. The, the, the reason why I've had all these opportunities in my life because of my relationships. Almost every job I got was because of a relationship. I didn't seek those jobs out. My friends asked me if I wanted to do them. So it was with the exception of the FBI, every job I had was through a relationship. And even the FBI, the reason why I got in was because a relationship. Once I applied, I had somebody who took my name. They didn't want to lose me. So they took my name and put it at the top of the list. And that was because it was a relationship. If that didn't happen, I would not have become an FBI agent because it was a hiring freeze in 1991, 92, when I, was, um, when I was going in. So just after I get in, there's a hiring. So relationships have driven my destiny. I, I'm just extremely fortunate, extremely blessed that I've had these, these uh, folks who are, they're intelligent, but they're so caring and they want the best for people. And that's my village. And you know, Joe's a part of my village, a village that really cares about society. So take us through the two um, 
the two experiences that, that, you know, people will say, well, why you, you know, I understand these things, but you had two very personal, uh, well, one was an, a yearly thing. Uh, the other one was while you were an FBI agent in Newport. Tell people the story of, of the two things that you experienced personally that, that give you the empathy to understand both sides of this equation between law enforcement and community. And so when, uh, because I practice law out of New York and Connecticut, really everywhere, but uh, I would go back and forth to New York from Charlotte, North Carolina a lot. And over the course of 10 years, I would be stopped by the police on drug interdictions while going up the highway because I drove all the time. And maybe once per year, I would, I would get stopped. And my ex-wife would be in the car with me and she would be pretty upset about the stops because she believed it was something racially based. And yeah, perhaps it was, um, but it was also these were drug interdictions. I know what a drug interdiction is because I used to be a part of them as an FBI agent. So I, I, I can see it. Um, so I'd be stopped and uh, the, the encounter would take two minutes. The trooper would feel safe and it would be off. That's it. We're done. And about the 10th time in 10 years, my ex-wife said, you need to write a book about what you did because what you just did, not many people know how to do. And it probably will, will save their lives, a lot of lives, if you write this book. And I was in the middle of building these companies, so I said, I, I just don't have time to write this book. But she pushed me on it, and then she pulled out this ace card, and she said, well, do it for our son. And I was like, what do you mean for our son? We, we didn't have a son at the time, but she was pregnant, and she knew she was having a boy. So she delivered a boy six months later. And from that point, when we were on the side of the road, and she told me I needed to write that book, it took me a couple of weekends. I wrote this book, and it's called How Not to Get Killed by the Police. Um, it has, yes, a controversial, uh, maybe provocative title, and I can tell you why I entitled it that. But it's a, it's a manual, basically. It's a 31-page book that gives my stories of being arrested and approached and detained by the police and how I handled those situations by, uh, by using compliance as a, as a method and then what to do afterwards. Uh, so that's, that's how I wrote, how I came to write this book. And the book was just an essay at the time for my son, my son who had not been born yet. I was gonna have a conversation when he turned eight, I was gonna have a conversation with him. He's about to turn eight in another month. So I wrote this book over eight years ago, before Trayvon, Michael Brown, and Eric Garner. But then when Trayvon, Michael Brown, and Eric Garner uh, happened, my ex-wife said, you need to release that book to the public. And it was, it was an essay for my son. But what I did was we, we put it into a, a book format and we released it. And from that moment on, we had, you talk about impact and response. We had all these mothers and fathers and aunts and uncles and grandparents calling us and, and emailing us saying, this is what we needed in order to have the conversation with our kids because our kids don't wanna really listen to us about how to engage the police. But because your book is structured in a certain way to tell your stories and they, they are taking to it. And now we're having this conversation about how to engage with the police. So that's, a, the book is being distributed everywhere we go. We teach law enforcement across the nation. We teach the National Academy, so we, we distribute it there. The FBI National Academy in Quantico, we teach in Charleston and Jacksonville. We're about to start this 
statewide uh, initiative in Connecticut that's huge. It's one of a kind. And so this book is distributed across really the world. And it's, it's a simple strategy. It's simple, but it ain't easy. That's what my friend Blake Galvin, who I played ball with in college, he always would say, he would always say, it's simple, but it ain't easy. And I'd be like, what do you mean by that? I finally get it. I know what he's talking about. It's simple in concept, it ain't easy in execution. So that that's what we did with the book. And you know, my first story in it is when I got arrested in Newport, which was which was a heck of a day. You were an FBI agent who was mistaken and, and arrested correct that's what happened yeah i was i was up in newport just vacationing for the weekend i had a rental home up there and uh, found myself in cuffs 15 minutes after i took my I took my suit off and put my jeans on i was going to a party and i was um I, there was a call out for a black male with a nine millimeter and uh, earlier in the day there was an allegation that a black male put a nine millimeter chest of another person and I was a black guy with a nine millimeter. It was my bureau issued nine millimeter. And I hadn't been in town when that earlier occurrence allegedly occurred, allegedly happened. So I just got there, was taking a few steps out of my house and I was in cuffs within a few minutes. And for the next few hours, I sat in the back of the police cruiser as the Newport police officers looked at my credentials upside down, literally turned them upside down because they didn't believe I was a, an FBI agent. And because I had the most verifiable alibi you could have, I was with my special agent in charge when that earlier occurrence, occurrence allegedly happened. The special agent in charge of the FBI in Connecticut is the number one law enforcement officer for the FBI in Connecticut. And I was debriefing him on a, on a civil rights case that we just closed. Deep irony with this story. Uh, in Norwalk, Connecticut, there was a civil rights case. I was a case agent. We just closed it and it was a case involving a gentleman named Keith Sumter who was uh, allegedly executed by the Norwalk uh, Police Department. After a year of investigating it with the US Attorney Christopher Droney, we came to the conclusion, no, he killed himself. Uh, he did not, he was not killed by the, the Norwalk PD. And we broke the news to Keith Sumter's parents that night, uh, that morning. And then later on in the day, I was debriefing my special agent in charge in my office at 3.30 when this other incident in Newport happened, allegedly. And so I had this great alibi, but nobody believed me. So I sat in that car for so long. And then when they finally did believe me, um, they really didn't say anything other than you can go now. And that's, that's a teaching point for me when I teach law enforcement. Um, so I'd like to take a couple minutes before we let you go, Q, and talk about dedication to community, how athletes are now starting to get involved, how students can get involved, and what the principle is. You, you, uh, you've touched on some of the things, but it's, there's so much talk about you know, defunding the police. Your vision is actually a little bit counter to that. And, and how do you build community, especially when you bring in high profile celebrities, athletes, and even students? Well, we're, we're all about empowerment and unity. That's our end game is empowerment and unity. 
So we bring athletes into our forums so that they can give their perspective, uh, their perspectives on these issues. There are so many athletes who are really engaged. We bring them in so that they can give their perspectives from a position of leadership as an athlete. This is what we think will work. And they have these platforms that they can use to message their, uh, their thoughts. Uh, we bring them to the FBI National Academy. It's really impactful when they get in front of these chiefs of police and sheriffs. We bring them to local uh, chief, uh, agencies, police agencies as well. And what it does is it gives a different spin on things for our audiences. Uh, we found it to be extremely effective. Ronaldo Wynn is, is a great former NFL player who has done this work with us for some time. Hardy Nickerson. Hardy has a brilliant wife, Amy Nickerson, who wrote a book that it was an Amazon bestseller uh, about some of these social justice issues. So we bring them in so that they can tell their stories. That's the one, that's the one thing I want from all of our lecturers. We have a faculty. And from that, with that faculty, I just ask that people tell their stories. We don't need lectures on bullet point stuff. Want them to tell their stories so that our audiences can glean from that the lessons to be learned. Um, so that's that's how we do it with athletes. And you know, we like I said, we're all about unity. So how do we empower people? Um, we we are launching something in Connecticut that's a one one of a kind circumstance in Connecticut where we bring the community and law enforcement together in teaching and education environments so that they can learn from each other. We educate and facilitate for law enforcement. We do the same thing for communities. And then we bring them together so that they can, they can learn from each other. And it's very powerful, extremely powerful. Um, so that's obviously now continued to grow. And before we let you go, Q, um, one, one question is most of the people who reached out to you the week after George Floyd, were they white? Were they Latino? Were they black? Were they men? Were they women? What, what were the majority or was it kind of a rainbow of people? And then the last thing, which we ask everybody is how do you stay informed? And for people now you've changed careers so many times, um, and reinvented yourself. What is the advice you give to people either recently in the workforce, looking for a job for the first time, have been displaced, you know, what are some of the, the advice that you give people? So um, we're, we're um, the people reached out of various backgrounds, how do you stay informed? And then lastly, what's your advice? 100% of the people who reached out were white male, 100%. And that's why I said, Silence is no longer an option. I said, you have to lead this. You have to lead this. And, uh, and they accepted that advice. And they then went on to implement strategies to do that. And, and many of them are CEOs of companies. So there's really a desire to be engaged. I, I'm so optimistic about our future because I saw that up close. Uh, as far as how I stay informed, I told you I had this reading issue. I probably still have it. I just have learned how to counter it. And I read voraciously. I read everything I can read. 
And that's how I stay informed. I'm not an, I'm not a guy who reads novels or things like that. I read a lot of um, stuff that is nonfiction, whether it's newspapers, magazines. Somebody told me when I was bouncing, one of my peers once told me that John F. Kennedy read seven newspapers every morning. And so I knew I had this reading issue when he told me that. And I started on that path to do just that. I figured I'm just going to do it through effort, figure out how to read and how to put these words together. And so I started to read, not seven, but I think I, I was up to like four or five. When I was in Jacksonville, I was up to like five newspapers per morning. And that's when we had newspapers. Now I just read everything I can online, everything. So that's, um, that's how I stay informed. And then the advice I give people is, I can only give advice that I've lived. And that advice is the relationships you, your relationships will determine your destiny and you are who you uh, have around you. So I have taken pride in the people who I've surrounded myself with. And a lot of that comes from my mother. She just taught us how to build these relationships. My mother could meet somebody at a sandwich shop and she would then be their best friend for 40 years. It's, it's the most incredible thing I've seen with her. I'm not her, but I try so much to be like that. <laughs> I might be like 70% there. And that's what my brother and I have, have really gotten a lot out of life uh, because of the way we build relationships and sustain them. Um, so lastly, Q, how can people find out more about you, about dedication to community? Where can they go to get more information? Social media. We're on social media, all over social media. Um, so I'm at M Quentin Williams, M Q U E N T I N Williams on Facebook and LinkedIn and then Instagram and Twitter. I'm at M Q B L W M Q B L W. Um, dedication to community is if you just it's dedication to community on our social media platforms we're on all platforms and then www.dedication2community.org and that's dedication to community.org so please join us visit us interact with us engage with us we are uh, really enjoying the conversations and the action that that's taking place. Great. And, and we're here, obviously, at the beginning of July. Uh, for those of you listening to this in early July, um, we'll obviously be educational, but for those of you who listen to it a little bit later, uh, you'll be able to get, this is kind of a primer for where Q will be going with dedication to community over the next couple of months. It's going to be quite a journey that's going to be go on, but it's already been a journey to this point. So Q, uh, Q Williams, thanks for joining us today on the CUSP show. Thank you, Joe. This has been a pleasure. God bless you. Once again, this has been the Columbia University Sports Podcast. I'm Joe Favorito. For my co-host, Tom Richardson, we'll see you down the road.